I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Matthew Berry is ESPN's senior fantasy sports analyst, a writer, author, and change maker in the world of sports. On this episode, Matthew discusses how his chase for happiness led him to a successful career, how going against the grain can create breakthrough ideas, and how being yourself is a superpower. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Matthew, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm good, my friend. Good to see you. It's very good to see you. I, I'm always intrigued when, when someone is differentiating themselves in field, finding success over time. I'm always intrigued about, are there non-negotiables that you do every day that you think has just helped you out throughout your career? S- say that one more time. Are there non, I'm sorry. Non-negotiables. Do you have any, any particular routines or, or practices that you've exercised that you think are just really impactful for you? Oh, that's what an interesting question. And the answer is no. I don't know that there's any non-negotiables uh, other than the obvious, like, you know, I need to eat, I need to sleep. Uh, you know, I need to spend time with my wife and kids. Um, I mean, I think those are the those are the non-negotiables in life, you know, not necessarily my career. I don't know that there is a, um, uh, there's, there is one non-negotiable. There is one non-negotiable. And that's to, um, to care. You know what I mean? Like I, the biggest issues I've had in my career with whether it's management or a client or a company that I've worked with or somebody else has been when um, I don't feel like they've cared. You know what I mean? There, there have been issues, there have been times over my life, and I've been lucky in that it hasn't happened a lot, but there have been times over my, um, over my career in which the sense that I've gotten um, from my superiors or whoever was ordering the work or whatever was like, it's fine. It'll be fine. Just phone it in or whatever. Like just, you know, like whatever we just, you know, like we're just going to slap the name Matthew Berry and fantasy on it and we're good. And I'm like, no, I, I, I give a shit. You know what I mean? Like no, I care. I care desperately and deeply. And like, um, uh, you know, I had an experience at one point in my life, I had an experience that was really an important lesson uh, that sort of taught me that. And, uh, and ever since then, like, I, I, I care deeply. And I probably drive sometimes my, my producers or editors crazy because I'll, 
you know, I write a column every week and it's 5,000 words and I pour over every single word. And I've been told like, why does it have to be that long? Why can't you just do this? Like, why can't, you know, like it takes so long. Do you want us to have somebody ghostwrite it for you? Do you want, and I'm just like, I can't, I'm not built that way. I just, I'm not built that way. I can't, I can't phone it in. I can't not care. I may not always be successful, but I always give a hundred percent to everything I do. Well, I think that's essential, right? If you're operating on those values, even if you aren't successful, at least you're operating on your moral high ground. You mentioned you had a lesson early in your career that taught you this. Could, could you share that lesson? Sure. So, uh, so I don't know how much you know about my background or your audience knows about my background. I'm sure we're going to get into it here some, but uh, I started my career as a, as a Hollywood screenwriter. I was a, I was a writer for movies and sitcoms uh, back in Hollywood. So, um, and this is sort of a way to kind of get into my career, but um, uh, I was living, after I graduated college, I went to Syracuse University, go Cuse. I went to, uh, I went to Los Angeles to try to make a career as a sitcom and movie writer. And my writing partner, I moved out there and we got a couple of, you know, kind of, you know, gopher grunt type job sample script. We managed to get an agent. We got a job and we sort of made our way. And so we'd been working for, I don't know, four or five years at that point as sitcom writers. And uh, one day we get a call from our, 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 our show that we were working on. We were working on this show called Union Square, which was a, you know, one of those Thursday night NBC shows between Friends and Seinfeld that just didn't work. And, um, and so we'd worked on that show. We were like low-level story editors, um, so we can take neither credit nor blame for that show. Uh, but at any rate, our agent calls us up and he says, hey, you guys want to get into movies, right? And we're like, yeah, one day, but we've, we've never written a sample script. We haven't written a, a spec, which is a sample movie script to show sort of how we would write a movie. And he goes, I don't worry about that. Like, okay. And he goes, uh, he goes, uh, have you ever, he goes, do you know who Paul Hogan is? Of course. Have you ever seen Crocodile Dundee? Of course. And he goes, well, Paul is a client of the agency. He, he wants to do a third installment of the Crocodile Dundee franchise. And I'm one of the agents in charge of putting writers in a room to pitch Paul ideas of what the third movie should be. He goes, if you want, I'll throw you guys on the list. And my writing partner, I like, yeah, let, let's meet Paul Hogan. That'll be a funny story. And um, never thinking. And he goes, yeah, because we're like, we've never written a movie before. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, you won't get the movie. He goes, don't worry about it. You're not going to get the job. He goes, but it'll be good practice for you to, you know, practice pitching to a movie star, you know, and, and uh, it'll just be good practice for you. We're like, great, let's do it. So we go in and we watch the first two movies again and we sort of realize, you know, um, so we come up with a, you know, a plot and we go in and whatever, I'm cutting on parts of the story, but in essence, we, we sort of, we half-assed the pitch to be candid. We just want, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just sort of like, ah, listen, you'll, you'll go, you know, you've done New York in the first two movies. You'll come to LA. He goes, you know, it, it had to be, the rules of the only rules we got were it had to be in Los Angeles. It had, I'm sorry. The only rules were it had to be present day, which is 16 years after the second movie uh, was released. So it had to be present day and it had to involve his real life wife, Linda Kozlowski, who he had met on the set of the first Crocodile Dundee, and they were now, you know, married in real life. So his, his on-screen love interest is also his, uh, uh, his uh, off-screen love interest. And she had to be in the movie. So we're like, those are the only two rules. 
So we're like, you know, you guys have been together. You have a kid. He's never, he's been growing up in Australia. You come to LA and, you know, like you get a job at a movie studio because you can talk to animals and uh, there's some bad guys there. You'll save the day. But most of the movie is you showing your kid around LA. It's, it's the blind leading the blind. It's Beverly Hills Croc. It's like, whatever, we'll make it funny. Like literally that's the, you know, it was a little bit more expensive than that, but not much. And he looks at us and he goes, hey, you guys are the only ones who get me. You're hired, you know, which is a terrible Paul Hogan impression. But we were like, wait, what? We're, we're hired to do this, this movie? And we were like, we were shocked. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why my writing partner and I didn't, you know, sort of didn't do a great job with the, the pitch, although we ended up getting a movie, was we didn't think there was any chance this was going to be any good. Right. You know, like we go into it knowing it's not going to be any good. Like it's a it's a sequel to a movie 16 years old. No one's clamoring for it. And in that period of time, like the big movie was there's something about Mary, which is, you know, really gross out humor, really R rated, uh, you know, Farrelly Brothers stuff. Brilliant movie. But, you know, Crocodile Dundee, those movies aren't built for that. It's a you know, it's a it's a very gentle kind of humor of those movies. And so. so we personally thought there's no chance this is going to be any good at all. And so we, again, we just sort of did it as a lark and it turns out everyone else had gone in and pitched, you know, crackle and saves the world from a nuclear explosion. And we were the only ones that went in with the idea of like, it's a simple character and a simple premise. It's just you reacting to stuff, you know, like, and here's some funny ways to, for you to react to stuff. And so, um, so anyway, so the lesson was, is that, we, we were like, do we want to do this movie? Really? Are we going to write Crocodile Dundee 3? And our agent calls up and says, he wants to co-write it with you, which means you get his quote. In the movie industry, you have a quote, which is a, you know, what you're paid to do the movie. And as first-time screenwriters, we wouldn't get paid that much money. But because we would be co-writing it with Paul, and I just do air quotes for your audio listeners, like you know, we were going to do the heavy lifting, but his name was going to be on it. At least that was the plan. Um, we had to, we were going to split his quote and his quote was massively high because he had written the first two movies, which, you know, for your audience that may not be familiar with it at the time, Crocodile Dundee and Law, Crocodile, the Crocodile Dundee movie franchise is one of the most successful comedy movie franchises worldwide in the history of cinema. The first movie made over $600 million in, you know, you know, you know, from, you know, 30 years ago, it, you know, it probably made like a billion and a half dollars in like today's money. Like it made a massive amount of money. And the second one was a huge hit as well. And so, and he, believe it or not, got nominated for an Oscar for his first, he got nominated for an Oscar for a screenplay for the first movie, which is a shocking thing. But anyway, so it was one of those things where they're like, well, I'm sorry, they, they want to pay us how much? We'll write Croc 3 for that much money. Are you kidding me? Listen, and God bless Croc, right? It, it bought me my first house in Los Angeles. But what happened is, is that we went into it knowing it wasn't going to be good. You know what I mean? And it wasn't something we were passionate about, Sean. It wasn't anything that I really loved to do. It was, it was a money gig, right? It was, a, it was the true definition of a sellout. And the, uh, you know, and my agent was like, look, you're going to be paid a crap load of money. They're going to pay you to write your first movie. It will get made. You know what I mean? And like, that's like, that's half the battle in Hollywood is just getting a movie made. He goes, and then you'll be able to go do, you know, stuff you really want. And we're like, okay. 
And I can tell you, again, it did get made. I made a lot of money from it. I made it. I made. I made more money from that project than anything else I ever did in show business. Again, like I said, it bought me my first house in Los Angeles. Not cheap to buy a house in LA. Um, so, and it sucked the life out of my soul. I hated every single minute of it. I dreaded going to work. I dreaded going to the premiere. I, I you know, like I can now make fun of it. You know, and I can make fun of myself for being there. And you know, and. And, uh, you know, joke about the fact that I was a Razzie nominee for my, uh, for my work on Crocodile and in Los Angeles. We did not win. We were nominated for Worst Sequel or Remake, but we lost out to the, uh, the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes uh, remake that year. But, uh, which I don't know if that's a compliment or, or to be disappointed. But anyway, it was just, but that moment, and that was in 2001, so it was 20 years ago. But that moment, Sean, taught me in a big way to never, ever... Never take a money gig. Never take something that's just that you don't love or that you're passionate because life's too short. And it's just, it just, it wasn't worth the money. And again, I made a significant amount of money on that movie. And it just like, if I had to do over again, I wouldn't. It's really interesting, Matthew, because I'm sure we both know other people who are still going to those soul-sucking jobs or going after those pursuits they think are going to make them happy, which they won't in the long term. But that's a really difficult decision for you to be able to step back and analyze what you're feeling and then proceed a different path. So I'm wondering how you were able to do that, right? Like, especially with all that money in front of you, and I'm assuming potential other opportunities that might have been in, in your path. Yeah, I was depressed, honestly. Like, I was, I was, you know, and and that was one of the, there were, there were a couple of moments in my show business career. And that was certainly one of them where, you know, I sort of had scraped and clawed and, you know, worked 12 years to get to a point where I was a working writer in Hollywood. Like I wasn't like an A-list guy, but I was working on movies that were getting made. I was, I was making six, you know, I was making six figures a year, um, easy six figures a year as a working writer in Hollywood. So I'm well-paid in a, in what most people would consider a glamorous job. And I was miserable, Sean. I had, you know, I've, I've played fantasy sports since I was 14 years old. Um, and, you know, I had been, in, in 1999, I answered a blind ad on the internet. Now, 1999, 22 years ago, was, that was AOL CompuServe. You know, you had to dial up to get to the internet. You, you know, you've got mail. Like, it was actually a novel thing to get email. Your listeners can imagine that far back, it was just like, it was like a, it wasn't something where you get every day. Like it was actually, oh, cool. I've got an email. This is interesting, you know? And um, so, but there was a website called Roto World that was advertising for writers. And they said, you know, again, it was a site that I was on a lot, but it wasn't a heavily trafficked site at the time. And Roto World was uh, basically said, you know, hey, we're looking for writers. I wrote in and I said, hey, I'm a professional writer living out here in Hollywood, writing for TV and movies. But fantasy sports is my passion. This is what I play all the time. Boy, I think it'd be so much fun just to write a column on the side, just to, you know, just as a, as a goof, you know, can I try out, can I send you a sample? And they wrote me back the next day and they said, we looked you up on IMDb. Married with Children is our favorite show of all time. You're hired. So because I wrote on Married with Children, I got a chance to write a free column on a low traffic internet site about football. But... I was ecstatic, Sean. I was so thrilled. And, you know, I was super excited about it. And so you fast forward to 2001, and I'm going through this with, with the Crocodile and D, and I had a couple other, of you know, tough moments in my show business career that where I was just massively depressed. And so here I am, I'm making, you know, I'm, 
I'm making well into the six figures in terms of my showbiz career. And all I care about is this dumb little column that at the time, I think, I think I wrote for Roto World for four and a half years and the most I ever made in a column was 50 bucks. You know, I started out for free and then eventually I got all the way up to 50 bucks a column. And then in 2004, people were starting to make money on the internet. And so I had a big enough following at Roto World that I thought I could start my own site. So I, I scraped together like 10,000 bucks of my own money, started my own, had somebody build me a website, found some you know, people that I thought were good writers and started my own, in essence, blog about fantasy sports, about fantasy football, baseball, basketball. And, you know, back then I didn't know about it. It certainly wasn't as prevalent as today in terms of like, you know, venture capital money or, you know, going out and, you know, Shark Tank didn't exist, any of that kind of stuff. So I didn't, uh, I didn't go out and raise any money from an investor. I basically realized, you know, I spent the amount of money I was going to spend on this. And now the only way to promote the website was me. And so I went to every TV station, radio station, website I could find. And I said, oh, I'll come on your air for free. I will write for you for free. Just link back to my website. Just mention my website. And, uh, you know, and, and I went to a bunch of different places like MLB.com, NBA.com, Sporting News, Roto World, my old site, let me continue writing for them. And they sent traffic to my new site. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was doing a bunch of that. I was out there hustling and, uh, we did some stuff for CBS sports as well. And eventually, um, it got to a point in 2004 to 2005, right around when I'm starting this website that I just realized that the only thing I'm waking up in the morning and I'm going to bed at night. And all I care about is this dumb little website that I have. I've got like 2000 kids on this site when I started, you know, like in terms of subscribers, I mean, maybe I had 2000 subscribers and, I'm being paid a lot of money by these movie studios to write movies and TV shows. And all I care about is this dumb little blog that I have. Like, I'm not thinking about this, you know, oh, I got the scene that I got to write tomorrow or, uh, you know, I've got to figure out a way out of this, this particular plot hole or whatever. I'm, I'm thinking about my website. And so, again, going back to sort of the lesson of Croc 3 of, you know, like, follow your passion. Follow what makes you happy. Like I went to my writing partner and I'd been in therapy, by the way, for like about two years now, trying to get up the guts to, to and understand that even though I'd worked really hard for this show business career, I actually didn't really enjoy it very much. You know, that I like, I worked really hard and I, I was like, well, it's got to get better. got to get better. And then I realized like, nah, it ain't going to get better. Like this is, maybe I'll work on bigger projects with bigger stars, but like, this is it. This is the gig. And, um, and you know what? I don't love it. I, there's parts of it I like, but a lot of the stuff around it I don't like. It doesn't. I don't like how it makes me feel, and so I went to uh, I went to my writing partner and I said, "Let's you and I do one last movie together, bank the money, because after this movie I'm quitting. I'm giving you a year's notice, but I I'm going to try to make a go of fake football. I know it seems insane. I know people are going to be like, and again, remember this is like 2005. Uh, you know, this is 16 years ago." But uh, where fantasy football wasn't what it is today, but um, it was, you know, considered this kind of nerd game that was played online with a niche audience. And I said to my writing partner, I said, listen, I'll probably, uh, you know, the, the idea that you could make a full time living at fantasy football was, you know, crazy. But uh, I just said, listen, I don't know if I can, but I know it's the only thing that makes me happy. I'll probably make $10,000 a year. I'll figure it out. I don't know. 
I'll probably have to get a, you know, a, a real job just to pay the bills, but I, I, I can't do this anymore. I want to chase happiness. I'm just going to chase happiness. And, um, so let's bank the money, do last one thing. And then I'm, and then I'm out. And I was so nervous, Sean, because I thought people were going to be like, wait a minute, you're quitting show business to talk about fake football on the internet. Like what? But all I wanted to do was chase happiness. And by doing that, by chasing my passion, again, going back to sort of like the thing that I cared about, I, you know, what's amazing is, is that I've made so much more money. I've been so much more successful. I'm so much happier than I ever was in show business, you know, like, and I get asked all the time, like, you know, is this your dream job? I'm like, no, when I was dreaming a job, it's like this job didn't exist, but you know, um, uh, you know, all I did, the, the thing, the most important thing was just chase happiness, chase passion, and the rest will figure itself out. I, I love that. So first off, uh, I mean, especially around investing, non-consensus and right is how you get really outsized returns. And what you did is, is you basically found something that was absolutely non-consensus and you were completely right uh, in terms of where the industry was going. So I, I love that. Uh, I'm assuming there's so many people listening though, and they like they have that in them, that they're pursuing something they know they don't like, that they, they want to go after their passion. That takes guts though, right? Like, was there a track record for you showing that type of behavior that, that, that you would go all in? Uh, yes and no. So there was in terms of I've always been a kid. I've always been a person that is that doesn't do anything like um, less than 100 percent. Right. I mean, so like um, uh, I was a teenage tennis player, like I was a really good tennis player as a kid. This will this will give a lot of insight into me. Uh, I was a, I was a tennis player as a kid and a really good one. I was ranked in the state of Texas as a junior. Um, you know, I won I won my district title. I went to I went to state and Texas is a very competitive state, as you might imagine, for Texas. Uh, tennis because you can play year round and um, you know so right I, I I went to the state finals and I was ranked as a and I had offers to play division one tennis so I could have you know I was a pretty good tennis player um, but the way I would play is I wasn't overpowering I wasn't a huge kid or anything like that like I didn't have like a massive serve I didn't have you know an amazing all I did was get the ball back you hit the ball 20, I hit it 21. You hit it 22, I hit it 23. I could get to everything and I could put it back in play. And you would finish playing me and you'd be like, that kid sucks. How did I lose to that guy? Because people would get frustrated and then they'd try to hit a winner on me and it would go out of bounds. And like everyone that ever played me always like had unforced errors. I was like a, like in baseball, you know, you have a, you play these pitchers that, you know, throw like 85 and junk and they're like, that guy's terrible. And then you'll look up at the standings and he's beating you three nothing. You know, you look up at the scoreboard, he's beating you three to nothing. You've gotten two hits off of him. Like I was that guy. And my point is, is I just, I never gave up. Like I always, it didn't matter where I could just get, again, you hit it 25 times. I would hit it 26. I could always just get the ball back. Always keep it. Like I just never gave up on a play. And so, so to that point, yes, there was there. And there's a lot of examples throughout my life of that sort of behavior, but specific to this about sort of throwing everything away and saying, I don't care. No, like that wasn't, you know, I mean, like, listen, I moved out of, you know, I, I graduated college and I moved to LA with no job, no prospects, no contacts. You know, my parents aren't in show business, anything like that. You know, my dad's a college professor in Texas, he, at Texas A&M University, Gigamags, um, still is to this day. And, um, so it's not like, you know, so I, I did all that and I went out there and sort of, made, you know, made my own move 
honestly, and I've written about this. I wrote a book called Fantasy Life. Um, it was uh, that was released in 2013, New York Times bestseller. Uh, that has nothing to do with the story, but I'm just really proud of that. Plug so it. I to just throw that in there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I mean, look, whatever. I mean, listen, you you can buy the book for a buck on Amazon. Like it, it was released in 2013, but it it tells a lot of these stories in more detail. And I think for anyone that's interested in in the in you know creating your own path, I think it's a really interesting book. Like I said, I've you can get it for a buck. It's not about me trying to push a book here. But um, but in terms of that specific moment, Sean, I did it because I had no other choice. Like I was massively depressed, and I come from a family uh, where you know, clinical depression is, is part of my family tree history, you know? And, and so I was massively depressed and I was in therapy and I was, I was, I was married. I, you know, I couldn't understand why I was so depressed. I'm like, you know, listen, I'm happily married. I got friends. I'm healthy. I got this great show business career. I don't understand what's wrong with me. You know, why am I depressed? And it took me a while to un that realized that, Actually, none of those things were true. Like, I, I did have a lot of friends. I was very lucky. I was healthy. That was lucky. But I wasn't in a happy marriage. I wasn't in an unhappy marriage. My ex-wife um, is a wonderful person. Uh, but we got married. Well, we got together when I was 25. She was 23. And when we split up, I was 35. She was 33. And we were completely different people. You know, for your, for your older audience, listen, just think about what you were at, like at 25 and what you were like at 35 massively different people. And like my ex-wife and I remember at one point talked to each other, like when we were 35 and she was 33, I was just like, if we met right now, we wouldn't even go on a date, let alone get married. We just, we were just became very different people, not better, not worse, but just, we both sort of went on divergent paths. And so I wasn't in a happy marriage. I didn't really like my career very much. I really, there was a lot of things that I hated about it. Croc three being a, a prime example. And uh, I realized that the only thing that made me happy and I was just in this massive pool of depression. But the only thing that made me happy was this dumb little blog that I had 2000 kids on. And so again, like I chased happiness, not out of some grandmaster plan, but I did it to, you know, not to be hyper dramatic, but I did it to save my life. Like it was like, for me, the only path that I could see, like I had to like, this thing makes me happy. Everything else over here doesn't make me happy. This thing makes me happy. I'm going towards happiness. And if I make no money, I make no money and I'll figure it out. But I just, I have to go towards this light, you know? And uh, my, my wife and I, at the time, like we went to couples therapy and we just realized we were better off friends. We just, we should, and we had a very amicable divorce and we are, we are friends to this day and she's happily remarried with a child and she's doing great. And, um, and, you know, I've since, uh, I've since remarried and I have a family as well. And so, you know, but it was, uh, so I don't know that there was anything that um, specific for that to get to your question. I think it was more about just like necessity. Yeah. Like I felt like I was just, I was at the darkest place in my life. No, I think it provides some incredible context there. And just a side note on the tennis, I heard someone mention a research study about if you want to win 90% of uh, amateur tennis players, they win by your style. They just keep the ball in play. They're not trying to crush the ball. They just keep the ball in play. So there, there you go for your tennis. You know, and it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's so interesting because when I think back about it and I hadn't really made that moment until, uh, this connection until just now, but in terms of style of play, like I'm a big believer and you play the hand you're dealt. Don't try to be something you're not right. And so in my, in my career, 
um, in terms of what I do in terms of fantasy football analysis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an, I'm an outsized personality. Listen, I'm pretty good at breaking down X's and O's, but I'm not a former player. I'm pretty good with contacts. I have a lot of, you know, NFL players, coaches, general managers in my cell phone that I can text for inside information, but I'm not Adam Schefter. You know, I'm not a guy like that, that, you know, knows every single person in the league. And I'm pretty good with stats, but I'm not like Nate Silver, right? You know, so like, but what I'm really good at is being Matthew Barry. Like I'm the best in the world at being Matthew Barry. And I've focused on just trying to be the best Matthew Barry I can be. And so uh, when I say, you know, like when I talk about tennis, right, same thing. It's just like there were kids that were bigger than me, faster than me, that had more powerful serves. But the be- I knew like the hand I was dealt was that I have really good hand-eye coordination and I'm, I can be really consistent. And so, again, I knew that I could, I could hit the same forehand 22 times, 25 times, 27 times in a row. You know, and so I just I tried to do that, you know, and most people at that time when I played, they were serving volley guys like you serve and you rush the net. I'm not good enough to do that. I wasn't fast enough to get to the net. So I would always serve it and then stay back because I knew that even though my way would take longer, my way would be more successful for me. That makes any sense. No, 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 Matthew. I don't, I don't think you understand how much sense that makes there. Um, four plus years, 250 shows. That is the underlying theme, even if people don't express it like you just did. Uh, when, I mean, you, you, by being authentic, being who you are, you escape competition every single time. And it's just one of the, one of the key fundamentals you have to. So I absolutely love hearing about that. I, I do want to know, though, um, why'd you decide on Syracuse? I'm thinking Texas weather. You're going to go up there to the Northeast. Why Syracuse? Two reasons, two reasons. Number one is I knew I wanted to be in communications. Actually, when I was in high school, um, I had a part-time job. And during my senior year in high school, a full-time job as a DJ at a local rock and roll radio station. I was Matthew Rock and Roll Berry on 1240 KTAM, uh, College Station, Texas. And, um, like, and I did this Monday through Friday, 7 to midnight show my senior year of high school. But I worked my way all through high school at the station. So... I knew I wanted to be in communications on some level. Um, and so, you know, that year, my guidance counsel, uh, counselor, shout out to a m Consolidated High School in College Texas. My guidance counselor that year, his book, you know, I want to go, what's the best broadcast school in the country? Syracuse University. So he opened up the book and according to the book, that book that year, the Newhouse School at, at Syracuse University was the best you know, broadcast school in the country. I, I, I'm just asking, I'm a, I'm a lacrosse guy. So you were there during the, the, the gate brothers at Syracuse. So I just had yes. to know, you, you talk about that. You're the, the, the one Matthew Barry, you do you. And I would love to know, because obviously we, we hear some of the backstories, we see you on TV, we read the great articles and I almost picture it. Like if you look at a duck on water, they're gliding across so smooth. What, what's all the churn like underneath? What, what are you doing day to day just to refine your craft or have you done throughout the years? Because clearly when you show up, what you do and the work that's gone on to, into it um, must have taken time and, and is very impressive. Thank you. Um, so there's sort of two questions there. But the, to me, in terms of like the churn to get to where I am is honestly like, you know, for your audience that hasn't ever read me, that like my call, I'm very different for better, for worse, but I'm very different than anyone else that does what I do, which is give advice on how to win at fantasy sports. I started out doing basketball, baseball, and football. I now only do fantasy football 
just because it's become such a massive game and it's really a, a you know year round kind of game because there's always there's always NFL news and when there's NFL news it affects fantasy value of players. Uh, but you know I, when I write columns, I write columns you know with, about personal stories about myself, right? I always start off every column with a personal story about myself or my life. Um, in terms of my podcast, you know, it's a, I liken it to, as a, it's a morning radio show that just happens to be about fantasy sports, mm-hmm. not nerds talking to nerds about fantasy sports on a podcast. It's an important distinction. And so, um, so, you know, and I, and I do a show, I do a TV show. I mean, we do a Sunday show called fantasy football now, which is highly rated and it's kind of right down the middle. Cause that's coming up on game day, but we do a fantasy show. Uh, for ESPN Plus, the fantasy show, because ESPN Plus is for anyone watching that sees the logo behind me uh, on the screen here. And that is, um, that's a kind of a Pee Wee's Playhouse meets fantasy football. Like we have puppets and I have a, you know, my co-host is not your stereotypical, you know, attractive woman. It is a, it's a bearded guy with a nose ring and full sleeve tattoos and huge bushy duck, duck dynasty type beard. You know, certainly not the kind of person you see on ESPN. He's very uh, unique looking. Uh, he's awesome and does an amazing job. But we specifically chose like wanting to go uh, completely different than what you expected. And so my whole point is, is that my style has never been for everyone. And it's taken me a long time to basically say like, yeah, no, I know what you think a fantasy sports analyst should be or a sports analyst should be like. I'm not doing that. I'm a, I'm a massive Howard Stern fan. And even if you're not a fan of Howard's content, which is obviously, you know, very specific style and brand, what Howard did was Howard just basically said, like, I know what you think a morning radio DJ should be. I'm going to do completely different. I'm not going to try to be the best version of what you think it is. I'm just going to be the best version of what I think it should be. And so I've really taken that to heart. And I've tried to be the best version of what I think an analyst should be, not what sort of everyone else does. And so but along the way, there have been a number of arguments with upper management, with fans, with other people that don't think that that's not the way you do it. And you're not. Why are you making a joke about this person? And why are you talking about your dating life or your wife or your kids or whatever? You know, like, just tell me who to start and sit. And so I've sort of fought against that. And I've also fought to try to be, uh, again, as anyone that can sort of hear this and tell, is just to be myself, fought to be myself. I know that sounds insane to say, but there's an expectation, especially when you're giving advice about something and you're on TV, right? That you need to be in a suit and tie and you got to be, you know, Johnny broadcaster. <laughs> Hello, I speak in a deep voice and complete sentences. And I talk with great grammar, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah that ain't me. You know what I mean? And like, this is sort of, this is who I am. And, um, and so that's been some of the, is trying to refine that in a way that's true and authentic to me but it's also entertaining and presentable to a large audience. I think it's even more entertaining because we can cut through the bullshit. We, we know when someone's yeah. standing up there and is just a talking head and is not being themselves. Uh, I'm wondering, though, because that, that has to be difficult. Um, when in your career and did you finally feel comfortable that you, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to be? It's uh, a great question. Um, I think that's a... That's a, that's a great question. And, um, you know, there's different, different standpoints, but, um, uh, I think it was my column, my love hate column 
when I first started writing it at ESPN, I got so much, like, what do you, like, I got two pieces of criticism. One was, no one cares about you. No one cares about your long stories. No one cares about, um, you know, all this baloney. Just get to tell me who to start and sit. So there were people that just hated that approach of me sort of like, here's who I am. Get to know me. And now you can hear my analysis. There are people that hated that approach. And then there are other people that thought, oh, you just want to be Bill Simmons. Because Bill Simmons was a, when I joined ESPN, Bill Simmons was, you know, our biggest personality. Still obviously is a, you know, giant in the sports media business. And, you know, he wrote, um, he used to wrote, write uh, columns that were, you know, also, uh, um, how do I describe it? You know, filled with pop culture references. And I think our styles are different, but there is a, um, an everyman kind of feel to both of them. You know, Bill and I both sort of write as if we're talking, conversational style is what I mean to say. Uh, Bill and I both write in a conversational style. I think we write very differently, um, but uh, we both write in a conversational style and we both, you know, we're about the same age. And so we have a lot of the same references in terms of our pop culture, our upbringing. Um, and so I used to get all that. And eventually, like, we just, we sort of put it out, we put it out. And at the end of that first year, um, might've been a year and a half or even two years in, but like the numbers came back and I was like, I was like the most read column on ESPN. Like it was, you know, it was like me and Simmons were like right there, like neck and neck. And, um, uh, you know, or, or like I was the most read columnist after Bill, something like that. But it was just like, I had like, here was all the, here were, here's the typical read of a fantasy article. And then way above that is the typical Matthew Berry read. You know, my editors came to me to show me those numbers because they were getting they were getting grief from people above them saying, like, make him change his style. And I had a couple of people that fought hard for me internally at ESPN that said, yeah, look at these numbers. Yeah. Absolutely not. Let him keep doing what he's doing. That confidence so that was for a you? Moment, a big moment for me. Yeah. Does that confidence just skyrocket for you after that? Yeah. And, you know, I've always tried different things. I mean, same sort of thing. Like, again, the pod, same thing with the podcast. Like, we wanted to be – we tried to be goofy. And we kept trying to be goofy and – um and, you know, have fun. And, you know, my attitude has always been, Sean, that, you know, like, it's fantasy football, guys. Like, so many of the people that do what I do is like, we're going to help you crush the competition and destroy your opponent and, you know, you know, uh, dominate your league. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, it's more fun to win, but guys, we're doing this for fun. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a hobby, guys. <laughs> we're doing, it's, a, it's a hobby for fun. Like, let's, can we enjoy the ride? You know, like, so I've always been much more about that, the, you know, that, that the journey is part of the fun, that the, um, that, you know, that fantasy is ultimately a hobby we play for fun and we should approach it as such. And, uh, and so I've really embraced sort of the fun spirit of fantasy football, which is different than a lot of people. And so the podcast reflected that and, um, and we got initial reaction, you know, pushback on that. And then we, you know, again, the numbers bared it out, you know, ended up bearing it out that, you know, it's a, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a top three sports podcast on iTunes. It's a top, you know, uh, 30 or 40 podcasts. I think overall, you know, as the foot fantasy season goes along and people get knocked out of their playoffs, our numbers go down, but we're, I think we're the most downloaded podcast on a per episode basis at ESPN, you know, and, um, so, uh, so, you know, the formula has, has worked and same thing with the fantasy show. Like I said, like people are like, wait a minute, like really? puppets bearded guy what you know and doing and we're like yeah man like i just think you can get you know three people at a desk in suit and top uh, 
You can get three people sitting at a desk in a suit and tie on any network anywhere. You know, like, I just want to do, and, and maybe if you want to ask the moment, that was the biggest moment, was ESPN came to me and said, have you ever seen Mad Money with Jim Cramer? And I said, yes, of course. And they said, we want to do that format, but with you and fantasy sports. We have an idea. Basically, you talking down barrel, standing up, talking right to the camera about fantasy football, you know, and have some fun with it. And he goes, he goes, that's my, my boss, a guy named Norby Williamson. Norby was like, that's my only rule. He says, he goes, my only rule, he goes, that's my starting point. He goes, my only rule is it can't look like anything else on ESPN. He goes, and other than that, go with God, do what you want. And so me and my producer, Ed Eck, you know, we were just like, hey, I think we can get away with more with puppets, you know, and puppets are funny. And we talked about Avenue Q, um, you know, or Pee Wee's Playhouse, or even, as I mentioned, I'm a Howard Stern fan. And, you know, um, back in the day, Gary Puppet or Jackie Puppet, I always used to love. And so um, uh, we wanted to do this kind of fun, goofy thing that everyone thought was crazy. And it's one, it is now four years in, we've, we've done over 250 shows on the, on ESPN plus, And it's one of the most popular shows on the platform on ESPN plus. And so it's been a, um, so, but, but I guess to answer your question about moment, that moment where I finally got my own show, right? ESPN had come to me. I'd been there 12 years and ESPN came to me and said, we're giving you your own show, which is not something they do with a lot of people. Well, it's going to be the fantasy show with Matthew Berry, like my name's in the title. And they're like, do what you want. And instead of playing it safe and saying, hey, you know, give me a, you know, give me a, give me an ex NFL player and a, and a, you know, and a female host and let's, you know, go do some cookie cutter television, which would be safe and right down the middle. I said, no, I, I, I'm going to do what I think is funny. And you guys are probably going to think it's weird, but we have a talking robot and we've got a bunch of puppets and we've, you know, and I, I want my podcast producer with his, his big bushy beard and his, his, you know, his nose ring and, um, you know, his tattoos, you know, um, uh, to be my co-host. And so, um, uh, you know, and, and it's gone well. So that was that moment where I had the confidence to say, like, I don't care if anyone else likes this. This is what I think is funny. This is my one big shot. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And it's again, it is. I've been very blessed, but it has worked out and people have enjoyed it. Matthew, I absolutely love this. Just just hearing some of, some of these inside perspectives. And earlier you mentioned that you, you need to care and you care too much for, for these things. So I'm so curious about how you analyze new opportunities, right? Like you're being stretched with all these things you're doing. So when a new thing comes on your plate, what, what's that analyze process? What's the lens like that you're looking through to see if this is going to be a fit for you? Very simply. Um, it's very simple. Will I enjoy doing it? Can I be successful at it? When I was, um, uh, when I was a, my mother tells me this story. I was five years old. And the kids across the um, and, and the kids across the the street from me, neighborhood kids, they built a treehouse. They built a treehouse uh, in their backyard, and my mom would tell me she goes, it "Used to break my heart because they would all scramble up there, and you were scared of heights. You know, as a young child, I was scared of heights, and so and I'd never climbed up. You know, and it was like, you know, again, you can imagine it was just like you know, like you know." Uh, nailed to a tree, like, you know, just like, you know, little planks, right? You know, it wasn't like a, 
a nice formal ladder. It was literally like they made a treehouse, like they built one. So it's just like, you know, wood planks nailed and it was pretty high up there. And so I was like, I was the lookout, you know, when we played in the clubhouse, whatever, I was the lookout, probably making sure, you know, no icky girls were coming to our clubhouse or whatever. And my mom told, I don't remember any of this. This is, I'm, I'm four or five years old, I guess, at this point. My mom says, she goes, you know, you did that. You were a lookout for a couple of weeks. And then one day you decided I'm going up there and you scampered up there like you had not, like, um, like you'd been doing it your whole life. And she goes, you've always been a, a kid that never wanted to try anything unless you knew you su- could succeed at it. Because you'd seen the other kids like try to climb up it and fall off once or twice or be scared or go up slow. And she goes, in the first, and you went up there two weeks after everyone did, everyone else did. But when you got up there, you scampered up there with no hesitation. You just went right up. And so I always thought that was a, a very, you know, kind of interesting um, insight into me. And so I'm a big believer, of, you know, it's sort of how I'm made up is, is like, I like to do things that I know I can, that I at least believe I can win at. That's not to say I've never had failures. I've, like anyone, I've had plenty of failures. But every time I go into something, it's because I'm really interested in doing it. And I'm also... And I also truly believe that I'll succeed at it, that I can succeed at it, that this is something that fits my skill set or be able to adapt my skill set to learn what needs to be done to succeed at it. I'd say that's a pretty good framework to go into new opportunities with. I am intrigued. We were just talking a minute ago about just the number of things you're involved with. What element of your you know what, work? Can I, uh, can I expand on that? Let me just give Please. you one other example of that. Like I, just because I just thought about this. There was a... Um, there was a conversation internally at ESPN, you know, I had with some of my bosses, um, you know, I don't know, a handful of years ago, call it maybe five years ago. I don't know where there were, where I'd started to get a lot of pop, you know, I'd, I'd gotten some nice popularity. I'd, I'd gotten, you know, comfortable on television. And there was a conversation about whether I should be more of an NFL analyst versus fantasy football. Right. That like, listen, I, I certainly know enough about the NFL and it's very easy to talk about why I think the chiefs will win the super bowl over the Buccaneers from just a pure NFL perspective versus breaking that game down from a fantasy perspective. Right. And so I could certainly do that. I can hold my own with, you know, some of our, of our analysts, many of whom are ex NFL players. Um, and so that was the conversation. Like, should I do that? Should I do, you know, half fantasy, half actual NFL should I transition to all NFL? Because the NFL is obviously much bigger, right? I mean, we have, you know, we have many, on ESPN, we have many, many shows devoted to the NFL, specifically around the NFL. And if you're an NFL analyst, you know, in theory, there would be more opportunities than if you were just a fantasy football analyst. And I thought about it. And again, sort of putting it through that lens. And I ultimately said, no, I said, you know, what's weird. I said, my instinct actually isn't to go away from fantasy, but rather to embrace myself in fantasy even tighter to wrap myself even more in fantasy and actually go away. I said, because the thing is, is that whether it's, you know, you think about the current ESPN roster of, you know, Teddy Bruschi or Randy Moss or, um, you know, Matt Hasselbeck, um, Lou Riddick, you know, there's always going to be a, there's always going to be a big name ex NFL player. Like if I become an NFL analyst, the best I am is, you know, I'm, I'm the seventh guy on the depth list. You know, I'm the eighth banana, right? And there's always going to be a portion of people that are going to look at me 
you know, sitting next to Randy Moss and Randy's awesome, by the way, this is, but I'm just like, no one's going to sit there and be like, I forgot what Randy's saying. Let me listen to Barry. You know what I mean? Like Randy Moss is one of, not the greatest wide receiver of all time in the NFL. Like, so I actually thought rather than go being a mediocre mid-level NFL analyst, let me just go try to be the best fantasy guy that I can be and wrap myself tighter in that because I know how to succeed at fantasy. And let me just try to grow fantasy and grow my role within the company bigger rather than trying to go over here to a bigger pond. I'd rather grow, I'd rather grow my small little pond where I have a nice position than try to compete in a bigger pond where I know, you know, given my skill set, I know, listen, I didn't play the game. And I just know the way fans react, you know, like I could research till I'm blue in the face. Like I'm not going to, what am I going to tell the audience about football that somebody like Rex Ryan, a former NFL coach who's been to multiple AFC championship games or Randy Moss, who's played at the highest level, you know, what am I going to tell an audience that those guys can't tell you? You know what I mean? But, but I believe there's stuff that I can tell the audience about fantasy that others can't. Does that make sense? I don't think you understand how much sense that makes and how many applicable avenues and, and areas and expertise or domain expertise that this applies to, especially for the listeners, a lot of entrepreneurs, startup investors, and just in terms of going after what you can truly be great at, as opposed to following the herd. So many of these things are just awesome, Matthew. So th this is fantastic. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the, right. That's, that's exactly right. Like, uh, you know, I see so many people saying like, you need to get into Bitcoin. Well, okay. It, or, you know, cryptocurrency. Okay. If that's what you're passionate about, you know what I mean? Like, like the people that are killing it at, at, you know, at cryptocurrency or the people that are currently killing it at sports cards, they, they, they love it, breathe it, eat it, sleep it. Right. I, follow your passion. Don't follow the quote hot thing. You know what I mean? Like just I, when I talk to college kids, I always say like, cause people always say, well, how do I get an agent? How do I get on ESPN? And I always, it's like, just get good. Just get good at whatever it is you're passionate about. Get good because I promise you that if you're good, we will find you. Or if we don't find you, we'll be upset that we didn't because somebody else will have. Like there's in any industry, there's no conspiracy theory to keep talented people out. We actively are looking for them. And in fact, given the economy, given shrinking budgets, giving limited resources, every person at every organization needs to be a rock star. If you are good, someone will find you and make you that opportunity. I promise you, just, just get good so that when you get that opportunity, you can crush it. You know, the, the worst thing that happens is somebody that gets an opportunity that isn't ready for it. Matthew, you know, the, so, uh, the comedian Steve Martin, he's got, he's got one of my favorite lines of all time, and it's, be so good they can't ignore you. It's so true. Yeah. You, you lived your life doing that. I'm pretty sure someone's going to find you. you you'll, you'll do just fine there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, that's exactly right, Sean. It just, I mean, you know, just, just get good, get passionate. And I agree with you in terms of venture and startups and everything like that, like, when you're doing a startup, you have to live it, eat it, breathe it. You know, the reason why, I mean, in essence, I, I'm a successful entrepreneur, right? Because I started the TalentedMrRoto.com blog, started that in 2004, left my actual real paying job to go make that transition, you know, went around everywhere promoting it. I'll work for free. I'll come in your ear for free, et cetera, et cetera. One of the first places I did that was ESPN, of course. Luckily, ESPN gave me a shot. 
first at local radio in LA. And then that led to me meeting somebody to do cold pizza. If you remember that early morning show, it was what is now called first take, but it was started out as cold pizza. I did a segment there and then I would do some stuff in ESPN news. And then I wrote for the magazine and I kept building my resume internally at ESPN until finally 2007 ESPN was like, we think fantasy football is big enough is that we need a guy. We need a, we keep talking internally about a Mel Kuyper. We're looking for a Mel Kuyper for fantasy football. We like all the work you do for us. I'd gotten good enough. They couldn't ignore me anymore. We like all the work you, you do for us. So we'd like to buy your website, move you to Connecticut and make you the guy. And that happened in 2007, you know, at the end of my current contract, I'll have been at the company 17 years. So, um, you know, it's obviously worked out in a, you know, significantly lovely way for me. Um, and, but that's the, you know, that's the case of it is it's like, but it worked, I think, because I didn't go on to, cause like, Oh, I think fantasy football is going to be a hot fad. You know, it worked because that was my passion. That's what I was doing in my spare time. Anyway, I love it. And I'm just, um, you know, and I just, I followed my passion. I chased happiness and the rest of it worked out. One last quick anecdote I'll give you about this. Um, my oldest son just graduated college and he was trying to figure out. And I said, listen, instead of trying to figure out a career, let's talk about what you love to do. This is what I would tell anyone listening because we're in, we're in an era now where Pat, you can monetize passion in a significant way. I remember meeting, um, uh, we did a pod, a live podcast show in Baltimore and uh, uh, the guy that runs the Guinness brewing plant in Baltimore, turns out he's a big fan of the podcast super nice guy invited us to have a tour backstage tour of it when we came to Baltimore. So we said, that sounds cool. So we go and we do that and we're going around and what they do there at that Guinness plant in Baltimore is they brew. They actually have a bar there that has like something like 30 some odd beers. Meanwhile, I think you can only only buy like five different brands of Guinness in stores. And what they do is it's, it's like a testing facility. They have people there that are coming up with different flavors of beer all the time and they taste test it and they go and then they have a bar there. And if it sells well in the bar, they do a, you know, um, they do a limited sample. And then if it sells well in the limited sample, it, it joins, you know, kind of their line of beers. But I'm saying to the guy, I'm like, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me there are people that work here and their entire job is just tasting beer? And he goes, yeah. He's like, we have our tasters and they decide whether it makes, you know, whether it needs to go back for, for more work or if we, you know, think it's good enough to sell to the public to see if to do a sample, a test run. And so I told my son, I said, listen, not that I'm asking you to do this career, but like, if you came to me and said, dad, you know, the only thing I love doing in this world is drink beer. I'm like, all right, there's a career for you. Like, you know, whatever it is you love to do, there is a way to make money for it. So figure out what it is you love to do and then figure out a way to make money at it. But there is a way we are, we live in a, a society where there's, it's never been easier to, to, you know, find an audience to, to, um, to find a path to monetize your passion. Matthew, so we're talking about analyzing different opportunities. And one of those those opportunities that, that you pursued is with the company Jetit. So I would love to hear more about what gave you enough conviction and interest that, that a partnership with them made sense. You know what? It, I appreciate the question because it's such an interesting company. And they stand for a lot of the ideals I do, right? So their, their CEO and founder, a guy named Glenn Gonzalez, and I wrote about him. I look it up if you write, you know, if you just uh, Google Matthew Berry Love Hate Jedit or Matthew Berry Love Hate Glenn Gonzalez, the story will come up. So this is a guy that was, uh, you know, uh, uh, served our country in the Air Force um, as a lieutenant colonel, um, you know, uh, flew overseas in, in combat 
and um, and uh, started, uh, as far as we are aware, uh, became the first African American to start his own private aviation company, and started with you know. And by the way, he was a guy that. He, by the way, honestly, Sean, you should have Glenn on your show. It, he's it a sounded like it. Yeah, guy. he's a dude. He's a fascinating guy. Like just. He, he, he goes into private aviation, you know, he's a pilot, right? I mean, he was a pilot in the Air Force and, um, uh, and you know, a very successful one. And so he decides to get into private aviation. First off, starting a company is hard, right? Number one is starting a company is hard. Number two is starting a company uh, in private aviation is even harder because, you know, jets are expensive. Like it's not cheap to buy a jet, right? And you, if you don't have a jet, you can't have a company, right? And honestly, like, um, I, I think there is a tremendous challenge as an African-American, starting a business, especially one that you have no, he, he had never run a business before, never raised money before, but he's such an impressive guy. When you meet him, you, you understand what people are like, okay, yeah, I'll give you my money. Started with, he was, uh, his first job out of the Air Force was as a regional salesman for Honda Jet. And he started with himself and two employees and hit the road trying to raise money. And now three years after he started, uh, they have 11 jets in their fleet. They've ordered five more. Glenn Gonzalez is the is the largest customer of Honda Jet. He buys more Honda Jets than any other customer. Um, his, he has a staff of 52. Um, and of the 52 people that I work for him, from two to 52, he's got 18 former military as well from all branches, the highest level. And so, you know, he is, again, he's a person that, like, the reason he did it is he was like, I spent some time in private aviation. I understood the market and I thought I could succeed at it. I knew I could succeed at it by having sort of, a, you know, luxury, luxurious private aviation travel um, at a fraction of the cost. They, they cost a third of what every other private aviation company works for. And so just meeting him and sort of the way that Jetit started from the ground up was really inspiring to me. And they, they do a lot of community service as well. And so they're just, they're good people, um, you know, and they've, they've taken my family um, around and, uh, you know, so I, I've used the service as well. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really awesome. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's been a great partnership. And just in terms of when you talk about entrepreneurship and taking a chance and following your passion, like a lot of the themes that resonate with me in my life, are very evident in Jedit, and so it's uh, you know I've, I've been with them for a few years, and it's uh, it, I take tremendous pride and joy in that relationship. They've been they've been wonderful partners to me. Yeah, well, it, perfect in terms of what you decide to go with, right? And and they align with everything that, that you've done and you've gone after for yourself individually. So I love that. I think I'm going to have to reach out to Glenn, uh, try to get him on the show here. You, Sean, I'm telling you, you meet this guy like. Like you meet this guy and you're like, I get it. He's just, he's an impressive man. He is an impressive, impressive human being with a great story that I think your audience would enjoy. Absolutely. Matthew, this has been, this has been incredible. This is filled with so many valuable life lessons. Uh, I'm not sure if everyone expected this is what was going to come out of this. This is, this is awesome. Uh, two final ones here before we wrap up. I would love to know yeah. though, you can watch one athlete, any sport one more time could be anyone throughout all of history. Who do you want to watch? At their peak, right? Yeah. Boy, that's a tough one because my initial thought is um, 
my initial thought is somebody that was, you know, really in their prime before I lived, right? Like, would be cool to see Babe Ruth, would be cool to see, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, would be cool to see Pele, right? You know, that like, um, uh, Jesse Owens, like, can I go to the Olympics and see Jesse Owens, you know, like, those are all like really Jackie Robinson, man, like, um, I'm, I'm probably picking Jordan in his prime. Cause you know, I don't know that I, I have a, I have a greater appreciation for, I was alive obviously during all of Jordan's heyday, but I have a greater appreciation for it now. I think, I think Jordan's the, uh, Jordan's the obvious answer. Although, you know, as a, as a Washington, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take that back actually. Cause I'm a Washington fan and uh, I wouldn't mind going back and seeing Sean Taylor one more time. That's what, that's going to pick Sean Taylor. MJ's right there as well, but Sean Taylor was special. You might upset a few people, former Tar Heel here. So we might have a few Tar Heels listening, but no, Sean Taylor. Yeah. Excellent choice there. Final one here. If you could do this, have a conversation. I know you love having conversations with interesting people. Once again, with anyone throughout history, who would you love spending an evening just having a conversation with? God, that's a, I'm going to say Steve Jobs. Just, you know, you know, the stuff that I've read about him seems like just obviously a visionary, fascinating guy, interesting worldview. You know, I mean, I think, listen, there's a, um, you know, listen, there's, there's some of the guys that are sort of my, you know, like I've met Howard Stern a handful of times because I've been on his show, but I've never, never had a real conversation with him. Like I think at dinner with Howard, because I think he's a fascinating human being and a, a truly brilliant guy. Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of our former presidents, you know, would be, it would be sort of fascinating. Like, listen, like, I mean, I don't know, like even Abraham Lincoln, like, you know, that would be, you know, like, I mean, I mean, think about sort of like his place in history. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I, I the, the first name that came to mind when, when you asked me the question was, was Steve Jobs. So Matthew, you're a man doing many things in many places. Where can the listeners stay connected with you? I know we're gonna have a lot to link up here. Where, where should we direct them? Well, first, if anyone, obviously ESPN. So, you know, it's the off season a little bit here, but, um, certainly my, you know, my column and my TV show are, are, uh, you can subscribe to them on ESPN plus, you know, and, um, uh, you can subscribe to the fantasy focus podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast, fantasy focus is there as well. So wherever you get, uh, your podcast, the fantasy focus podcast from ESPN is myself. And always you can follow me on social media. I am at Matthew Berry TMR on all forms of social media, even TikTok. I'm at Matthew Berry TMR, except for the Fantasy Life app, where I'm at Matthew Berry. So I am co-owner of the Fantasy Life app, which um, is a social network for fantasy players, DFS players, and sports gamblers. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm the co-founder of that company. Um, and, you know, as we talk about sort of venture capital and, um, and entrepreneurship, that's, that's my current a side hustle, if you will, uh, outside of ESPN. And I mean, obviously I have a, I have a carve out with my, with my contract with ESPN to own and promote it. And they've been great, uh, you know, friends and understanding and helping me promote that. But, um, the fantasy life app, you can always find me there as well. And so it's a great tool. If you play fantasy sports or gamble on sports or play DFS like DraftKings or FanDuel.
Well, we have plenty of listeners who do. I mean, luckily, you don't have a lot of things going on, Matthew. So I, I really do appreciate the, the time, especially during Super Bowl week here. Um, I, this was awesome. Uh, just the amount of life lessons and pursuits for anyone at any stage of their career. So Matthew, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Sean, I appreciate the, uh, the time and the kind words. Really fun. Let's do this again. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.